Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. Today I'm going to be bringing a standalone message called Miracle Mile, and we're going to dive right in to God's Word. And so if you've got your Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew 5. We're going to start reading at verse 38, so Matthew 5, 38. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture if you've been around the church world at any period of time. Uh, this actually contains what we know now as the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous sermons of all history was preached by Jesus. And if you read from the very top of this, from verse one, which we don't have time to go into the whole thing, but Jesus, there's a crowd of people and Jesus walks up a mountainside and he calls his disciples, his close followers to him. And then he starts downloading into them this expectation of what it looks like to really be a disciple of Jesus, to really truly follow after Jesus. And most of the time when Jesus is, is talking about his kingdom that he setting up and to follow him in this kingdom, a lot of these ideas are countercultural, and a lot of them are counterintuitive, and this is absolutely no exception. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, he starts off by saying, and this is the words of Jesus, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and that it is powerful. God, I pray that your word would provide peace, but God, that your word would challenge us this morning as we follow after you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, something you should know about me is I love being in the room or being in a situation where there is an awkward moment because of something someone did or said as long as it's not at the expense of me. I'm going to put that caveat in there. I love being in the room when someone does something or says something that creates an awkward tension where they try to backpedal out of it and they try to make excuses and then usually make it worse for themselves, right? Now, it's not fun when you're the person trying to backpedal. It's very fun for me to be in the room and watch you backpedal, though. It just really is. And you can blame Michael Scott for that, I guess. I don't know. But I, I love those tense, awkward moments and situations. And I, I tend to have a front row seat to a lot of those moments in my life. And some of it, I would kind of attribute to what me and my family call my ethnic ambiguity. Now, let me explain what I mean by ethnic ambiguity. And some of you are very uncomfortable right now. And this is playing totally into what I'm hoping for today because I think it's hilarious, right? People often try to figure out my ethnicity. And so I get a lot of guesses on this. I honestly, until the last few years, I didn't even know this was a thing. I just, I'm, I'm just Andrew. I, don't, I didn't know that it mattered or that people had questions about this. The older I get, maybe the more bold people are, are thinking of asking me, but I, I don't know what the deal is, but I'm getting questions about this. And so people guess a lot of what my background and what my race is or what my ethnic background looks like. And, and I, I see it in your faces. And some of you right now, you're like, he's finally gonna tell us. <laughs> I'm finally gonna know. I don't have to wonder anymore. And because I love awkward tension, I may not even tell you and just let you just hang all, just kidding. I'll tell you just in a minute, right? I get a lot of guesses. I get um, sometimes, depending on the way that I wear my facial hair, I get that I am of Middle Eastern descent, 
right? And so, you know, like I can't, I can't like grow my beard out and not expect to get those comments. Like if I grow my beard out, it comes in really, really thick. Like Pastor Rocky can grow a beard and he looks really wise, right? I grow my beard out and I get randomly searched at the airport, <laughs> right? It's not fair. I've had a lot of people ask if I'm biracial. I've had a lot of people ask if I'm Hispanic, and I, I want to make something very, very, very clear. I love these ethnicities and these backgrounds that I'm talking about that people think that I am, but I am not any of those things. I'm just not, right? My, I, I favor the, the, my physical appearance. I favor the genes on my father's side of the family, which are mostly Croatian and Italian. I don't know how this happens from Croatian and Italian, but it's what happened, right? My mom's side of the family is like very European, very like Austrian, German, British Isles European. And so this is what you get, I guess. So this is, this is who I am. Question answered. You can tick that off the box. You don't have to wonder anymore. That's what I am. But because of this ambiguity, I get a front row seat to people trying to backpedal out of conversation. Like people ask me like all the time, they're like, where are you from? And I know what they're asking me, right? Like I'm not dumb. I know what they're asking me. And I'm like, well, I was born in Pittsburgh and I grew up in South Florida and then we moved up here to Newberry from Clearwater and it doesn't answer any of their questions, but they feel like they can't ask me anymore. And so I just stare at them for a while. It's fantastic. <laughs> A couple of weeks ago, we were at Universal Studios, and I was in line for a ride, true story. And my family had gone to the bathroom, so I was just simply the, the placeholder for our place in line. And this woman who, was, who was, had her back to me the whole time was talking to her family. She turned around, made eye contact with me, and so I kind of shifted my body to, to look at her. It looked like she was about to talk to me. And she started speaking all Spanish. Like, not any, not, not like wading into a conversation. Like, I could tell by the tenor and the tone that maybe she had a question that she was asking me, but I had no idea what that question was or what series of questions they were, and she did not let up. Like, she did not breathe. She just, like, started just going 100 miles an hour in Spanish at me. She must have seen my eyes get real big, because her eyes got real big, and she said something to the effect of, uh, no habla espanol, and I said, uh, no say English. Um, that's about as good as it gets for me with Spanish. I took two years in high school. I don't know where they went, but they're gone now, right? And so I had no idea what she was saying. And the look on her face was priceless because I, I got to see firsthand, face to face, eye to eye, that awkward moment that I love being involved in when I'm not the brunt of it. And she was so embarrassed, but then her facial expression changed a little bit from embarrassment to just, just disappointment. Like she looked, she looked almost like, like, how dare you? Because I'm sure she thought I was Hispanic. How dare you, a Hispanic man, not know how to speak the language, right? And she just had this look of like disappointment. I feel like I let her down. Like if I could have, like, lo siento, I'm very sorry <laughs> that I don't know Spanish. And I couldn't even explain to her, like, I'm not his, like, I don't, I, I couldn't explain. There was a language barrier, right? Very, very disappointed, right? And I feel like in life, we come across times when we are expecting one thing, but we're disappointed when we get something different or a different version of what we thought we were going to get. And in the first century, when Jesus comes on the scene, when he becomes all man, God incarnate, here to walk with us, to live this life beside us, to live a perfect life, to die for our sins, to be raised again so that we can place our faith in him. When he came on the scene, he was not what people were expecting at all, and a lot of people were really disappointed. 
Because at the time when Jesus made his appearance on the earth, you've got to understand that the, the, the place in antiquity where he was living was controlled not by the, the Jews, which was his people, but it was controlled by the Roman Empire, which was notoriously ruthless in how it took over territories, and they, they prided themselves in their violence. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, there's this group of Jewish people that have been oppressed, their land is being occupied by a foreign enemy with much force, and there is this Messiah all through history that's been promised to the Jewish people, and the Jewish people are hoping when he finally shows up that he's going to show up in a, with a sword in his hand and on a horse and just defeat the Roman Empire so that they can finally have their promised land back. But instead of Jesus showing up as a king with a crown on a throne, he shows up as a baby in a barn, and it just blows people's minds. And even as he grows up, instead of fighting and resisting and rebelling and all of those things that they were hoping for, what he ends up doing is preaching sermons and talking about a new way to live, talking about dying to yourself, talking about living in this kingdom that even though you're oppressed physically and you're living in a land where you don't get to make choices because there's an occupation of your country, you can still live within the kingdom of God no matter what your physical circumstances are. It's not what people were expecting, but I can tell you it is absolutely everything that we needed. And most of the time when he would speak these things, it was, it was so far-fetched, it was so countercultural, it was so counterintuitive, it didn't make sense to people that it just, I mean, it was shock and awe when he would preach. And the Sermon on the Mount is maybe the best illustration of this. The cultural references that he uses that we're going to dive into just a little bit today would have absolutely shocked the people in the crowd where he was talking that day. And so we find in Matthew 5 and 38, that passage that we read earlier, he challenges us and he challenges his listeners on the prevailing thought about how we treat somebody who has wronged us, right? He challenges us to change how we think about how we treat someone who has stabbed us in the back or lied to us or stolen from us or somebody who has just plain mistreated us. And he starts the conversation in this small snippet of his sermon by saying, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, and then he goes into these few illustrations of how we are to treat people who mistreat us. And he uses illustrations like, if somebody slaps you on one side of your face, turn the other side of your face to them, right? And so slap your neighbor real quick and then turn, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> And he, and he says things like, if somebody sues you in the court of law for your shirt, don't just give them what is owed to them by the court of law, give them your coat as well, and then maybe the most abrasive and most offensive to the Jews that were in his earshot at the time, he says, if you are forced to go one mile, instead go two miles with them. You see, Jesus is, is calling us to a higher standard of treating people who mistreat us instead of revenge. What Jesus is alluding to is that we're supposed to overextend ourselves and serve them. That's what Jesus' call to action is for us. And I'll be honest with you, I don't even think I need to say it, this is not natural. This is not in, in our normal reaction when someone mistreats us or harms us. The gut level reaction when somebody wrongs us is what? It's to seek and exact revenge, right? It's the reason that we love reading books and watching movies that have a great revenge story in them. We relate to them. They empower us. They embolden us. They're so satisfying. We love it 
when the antagonist in the story gets what's coming to them, right? When Batman puts the bad guy in jail, we cheer, right? When Simba throws Scar off the cliff to the hyenas, we're all about it. When the handsome investment banker who finds himself in a quaint little town decides to dump his controlling, mean-spirited, power-suit-wearing girlfriend and falls in love with a simple yet attractive small-town girl in every Hallmark movie ever created. <laughs> we get it. We cheer. Because simply put, revenge feels really good. It feels right. It feels justified. However, according to the words of Jesus, if we're to be disciples, we need to begin pursuing the opposite of these feelings. And so as Jesus is teaching us how to do this, he's using these examples from culture that would have absolutely connected to his listeners, but we're a little separated from now. And the one that I really wanna focus on is this, this teaching that he has in this one short sentence that has such deep implications into our lives. When he says in verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. To reference how we started in, in talking about the, the Roman occupation. At this point in history, that occupation had lasted in, in the area of Palestine for about 100 years, and so for a century, the Jewish people were not free. They could not do what they wanted to do. The Romans came in and they enacted their own laws. Now they allowed the Jewish people to keep some of their laws as well, their religious laws, but they didn't get to, to practice the way that they wanted to practice. They didn't get to live the way that they wanted to live. And so the Romans actually had a law on the books that if any Roman soldier walked up to any Jew at any point in time, he could make that person carry his gear, his effects, his pack, and maybe even his weapons for exactly one mile. So just think about this, right? You're in an occupied state. The land that is yours is not really yours right now. And then to heap insult to injury, any Roman soldier who is currently oppressing you can hand you all of his gear that is sustaining him and keeping him alive and warm at night with a blanket and a tent, and then also hand you the very weapon that he can use to kill you if it's justified enough in his opinion, and then watch you carry that burden for one mile. It's incredibly oppressive, and the Jewish people hated it, as we can understand, as all of us would understand. And so there was this, this kind of commonplace um, ritual that would happen for Jews. And what they would do is because they wanted to make sure that they weren't going to go any further than that one mile, what a lot of families would do is they would send their youngest son out with a stick or a stake, something maybe kind of like this. And they would make them walk off one mile from the front door of their home. And when they got to that place, that one mile away from their door, they would plant that stake in the ground and they would leave it there and they would know that that signified the exact measurement of one mile from my front door to this stake. And so the next time that a Roman soldier knocks on my door and he tells me I have to carry his junk all the way across wherever, then I'm gonna carry that because I have to and if I don't, there's a good chance that I'll lose my life. But I'm gonna carry that thing to this point and not one inch past this and what was commonplace is that they would take the pack at that one mile marker without going a step further over it. They would drop that on the ground, throw the weapon on the ground, spit in the dirt as a sign of total disrespect, and then completely turn their back and walk the other way. This is what Jewish people did as their form of resistance within the bounds that they were able to without being physically 
disciplined. And so this is a tense subject. For us, we think about it now because we think about, yeah, we should go the extra mile for people, and that's good customer service. But then, oh, this was charged. This was charged with so much emotion when Jesus says this. And so basically what Jesus is saying in context of, of, of what we are discovering here today, and I'll paraphrase a little bit, Jesus is saying to his Jewish audience of people, listen, when that Roman soldier shows up at your doorstep, you take his pack, you take his gear, you take his weapon, you go to that one mile, and when you reach the mile marker, don't throw his stuff down, don't spit in the dirt, don't say anything to him, and just keep walking. Cross that threshold and walk, not just another couple steps to make a point, walk an entire extra mile. I can imagine that the disciples and that the Jewish people in the crowd probably, there was an audible gasp, if I could guess. There, there was probably some indignation that was happening as they're trying to, to reconcile this and trying to figure out exactly what Jesus is getting at because this is just offensive to even really think about. And let's be honest, the implications in our lives are extremely profound. We don't have to to stretch this too far to really understand that what Jesus is calling out of us and and expecting of us is not just to do the, the bare minimum when it comes to our relationships and reconciling relationships. It's not just to forgive, but it means to go the extra mile and serve someone. It's like that boss that takes credit for your work. It's like the extra mile principle applies and we are not just to forgive them, but we're to serve them somehow as well. That spouse that ignores your needs, you're not just to forgive them, but you're to figure out ways to serve them. That friend who gossiped about you and stabbed you in the back, we're not just supposed to forgive them for it, we're supposed to serve them. The mother-in-law who overstepped her boundaries once again, we're not just supposed to forgive them, we're supposed to serve them. This teaching gets very real very quickly in that context, doesn't it? I think it was Mark Twain that once said, I have no problem with those parts of the Bible I don't understand. It's those parts of the Bible I do understand that gives me the fits. This is a part of the Bible that I think we understand, and this absolutely gives us a fit. This is hard for us to reconcile. It's hard for us to really fully grasp and fully understand how we can live this life out because it's what Jesus is calling us to do if we're gonna move beyond being believers to disciples. If we're gonna move beyond a place of complacency into a place where he's calling us to. And it's important for us to know the implications and the power of this second mile. Because see, here's the reality. In this first mile, this first leg of the journey to that mile post, I can be right and I can be justified in this mile right here. And in my head, I can be rehearsing all of the reasons why I'm right and why I'm justified in this mile. But once I step over the threshold into the second mile, I have to die to myself, which is what Jesus is really after anyway. You see, in this first mile right here, I am a slave to whatever has been done to me, whatever has been said about me, whatever, however I've been treated, I am a slave in this mile. Once I move past the mile marker though, I am a servant because I am choosing to carry that burden. I am choosing to forgive that person. I am choosing to serve that person. In, in the first mile, I'm a victim of what happened to me. In the second mile, I'm walking in victory because I am walking the steps that Jesus Christ has planned out for me. You see, in the first mile, I'm dealing with all kinds of bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment and I'm holding a grudge, but in the second mile there are blessings that abound because once you step 
from the first mile to the second mile, we step past obligation and we step into submission. That is the line. That is the stake that is in the ground is that I'm obligated to do certain things to feel good about myself, or I'm obligated to go to church so often, or I'm obligated to do this, or I'm obligated to do that. But then when it crosses that line, it moves from obligation into submission. And the power, the real power of the second mile that Jesus knows that he's trying to to get us to follow and, and to line up with is that the second mile puts you in a posture of submission. You can't take that step without submitting first because you don't have to. You can't take that step without your heart bowing to what Jesus wants for your life. That change in posture goes from I have to forgive them to I choose to serve them. And you know what's amazing about Jesus is Jesus was never the teacher that was like, do this, do this, do this, and then never did it himself. Jesus is the ultimate example of the person who went the extra mile. Jesus, even in telling this this sermon and in using this illustration as a point, is almost foreshadowing what's going to happen to him and how his time on this earth is going to end through a brutal crucifixion because he knows that he's going to go the extra mile for you and for me, right? I mean, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, it says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Here it is. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so as Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's talking to his followers about, listen, I know that the Roman oppression is real and I know that it's offensive and I know that it's deep and I know that it hurts. I want you to get to that mile marker and I want you to keep going in every aspect of your life because listen, disciples, listen, followers, listen, everybody that's listening to me, Jesus says, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to die on a Roman-invented device for execution in a way that is agonizing for you. There's, There's no way that anybody can go further on the extra mile than laying down their life, and that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He exemplifies to the greatest degree what it means to go the extra mile, and Jesus calls us by example and by this, the words of this sermon, he calls us into a life of submission and obedience. And while I, I, I believe fully that Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount is talking directly to us about our relationship with people and our uh, um, ability to forgive and to serve others, I think that this extra mile principle reaches into every single area of our life. I don't think it's just confined to our relationships because I think that when we move past the the have to to the get to posture, that submission really changes who we are on the inside of us. Right? When, we, when we get past the, uh, you know, the, I, I'm, I'm going to go to church this many times, and I'm going to pray this many times, I'm going to do my devotions and all that stuff, just to tick off the box so that I can say at the end of the day that I feel like I'm a good Christian. When we go from that to the extra mile of, okay, you know what, I'm actually really going to submit my life to Jesus, and I'm really going to listen for his voice, and I'm really going to do the things that he's asking me to do as uncomfortable as it can be at times, I'm going to take that step, I'm going to submit myself to Jesus himself and what he is leading me 
to do. You want to know one of the amazing benefits of living a life in the second mile? One of the, one of the most amazing byproducts of us submitting, going from this, this mode of obligation to submission, is that this posture of submission in our lives, it precedes the miraculous things that can happen in our lives. This posture of submission precedes miracles happening in our lives. And if you're not sure if you believe that statement that I just said, then just crack your Bible open and look at all of the stories of the faithfulness of God and how those stories played out and how those people put themselves in a place of submission, in a posture of submission in front of God before those miracles happen. Listen, what about Noah? Noah's posture of submission and obedience to building the ark when it had never even rained on the earth preceded the miracle of his family being saved. Moses' posture of submission in his obedience to demand Pharaoh let the Israelites go in Pharaoh's court where he faced certain death if Pharaoh didn't like what he had to say, preceded him standing on the edge of the Red Sea and the waters parting and a nation following him to freedom. Joshua's posture of submission and obedience of walking around the walls of Jericho that were thick and that were fortified, literally going the extra mile, preceded the miracle of those walls falling down flat and them taking the city. J. Iris in the New Testament, his posture of submission was him literally kneeling down at the feet of Jesus, begging for him begging for Jesus to heal his daughter who was sick. That preceded when Jesus got to his daughter and the daughter had already passed away, him raising that young girl back to life. The woman with the issue of blood's posture of submission, it was that she pushed through this crowd, saying to herself, if I can only get to the hem of his garment, then I know that I can be healed, preceded the miracle of the healing that no other doctor could even come close to performing in her life. You see, our posture of submission mission puts us in a place where we are able to receive the miraculous from God. And when we go the extra mile, our hearts cannot wait to get into that posture of submission. That's why the extra mile is not just an extra mile. That's why the extra mile is not just the second mile. It's not just something nice that we do for somebody. It's not just a little bit of customer service. It's not just a little bit of being nice when it doesn't feel like it. No, no, no. The second mile, the extra mile, is the miracle mile because it puts our hearts in a place where we're ready to receive that miracle from God, the way that only God can do it. I've seen this played out time and time and time again. I was talking to a couple recently. I didn't get permission to use the story, so I don't want to use any names. But they were on the fence for a while, and this is part of their story, their past. They were on the fence for a while about tithing and figuring out if this is something that they were going to do because it didn't make sense on paper. And so they just decided that they were going to take a step. They were going to go the extra mile in their life. They were going to assume a posture of, of submission, and they were going to do what they felt like God was asking them to do in, in starting to tithe. They, they were tithing for a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks, and they got a check in the mail for something like $30,000, unexpected, out of nowhere, just boom. I am not a prosperity preacher person at all, so don't freak out and don't get weirded out. Don't call Pastor Rocky, right? However, I'm not saying that that's going to happen. I'm not saying that if you're on the fence about tithing, that if you put money in the bucket today, that tomorrow you're going to get a check in the mail. I'm also saying that it's not going to happen. But I do know this. I do know that when we put ourselves in a posture of submission, that God can do amazing things in our lives. And so I think that the obvious question for us to reflect on this morning is, what area in our lives have we been giving just the bare minimum? 
What, what area, what space, what place in our hearts have we just been doing just enough to feel good about ourselves, just enough to get by, just enough for whatever? Is it, is it in giving? Is it, is it that there you feel like there's something, a, a substantial gift that you are, are waiting on giving, you feel God calling you into some, some sacrificial uh, place in your life where you're giving something that feels like it's going to cost? Or maybe for you it is tithing, and that's the, the kind of the mile marker you've been stuck on, and you haven't taken that step over. Or maybe for you it's some forgiveness. Maybe for you, you're standing right on the edge this morning of that mile marker and you're not stepping one inch over that. You're not gonna give that forgiveness to that person because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it and they probably don't. But is, is, that, is that where it stops for you? Is that where the tension starts to build as far as doing more than what's expected of us, of assuming that posture of surrender in your heart? Or maybe for you, you've, you've been holding back some words that the people that you love the most need to hear from you. Or maybe for you, it's that you use too many words and you need to pull back on that. Stop being so sarcastic and biting and mean. It sounds like I'm talking from a place of knowledge. It's because I'm working on it and Jesus is working on me all the time. Maybe for you, it's in your marriage. And I know that we just had the marriage conference and I know that we just had a series about marriage. Maybe for you, it's like you put that stake in the ground in your home, in your marriage, saying, I am, I am done doing these selfless things for my spouse because I'm getting zero reciprocation. I'm getting nothing back, and I'm just done. And, and is that the place where you feel like God's calling you into this miracle mile? Maybe it is at your job. Maybe it's where you work. Maybe it's that you've been giving just the bare minimum effort. You've been working for your boss. You've been working for yourself. You've been working for a paycheck. And it's time to start working as unto the Lord, as the word of God tells us to do. So where is that place? Where is that space in your life? Now, I don't want to make any mistake. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that by going the extra mile in our lives and by going from a place of obligation to submission in our hearts that we are earning a miracle from God. That's not how it works. We don't earn anything from God. All I'm saying is, is that when we do that, we are putting ourselves in position. We are submitting ourselves to a God who can do the miraculous. And so why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we assume that posture? Why wouldn't we put ourselves in a place where we are ready to receive a miracle? Because you never know what's on that miracle mile. You never know what blessing is on the other side of that mile marker that you said you're never gonna go past. You never know what financial blessing, you never know what healing, you never know what healing to your family and to your marriage or somebody that you've been praying for coming to Christ that would be an absolute miracle if they did. You never know what's on that miracle mile. And so my challenge for all of us today is to identify these places in our lives where we've been doing just enough to get by and for us to move into a posture of obedience and submission and allow God to do the miraculous in and through our lives. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.